everybody out this evening. Um, I know some of you have been with us throughout the week, and some of you may not be able to make it back tomorrow. I hope you will. But if you're not going to be able to make it back tomorrow, and you've been here this week and are with us tonight, I just wanted to have an opportunity to say thank you for supporting this meeting, and thank you for being here. It's been an encouragement to me. And again, I just want to uh, express my appreciation to the congregation for, for allowing me the opportunity to come and talk with you this week. During this week, we've talked about some principles and some things that I think are, are very important. We began the meeting talking about the terror of the Lord. And we talked about how real heaven, hell is and, and why we need to appreciate hell in order to appreciate heaven so much and why it's so important that we have that concept embedded in our minds and that we're willing to teach that to the world. On Thursday, we talked about Jesus Christ as our advocate we talked about the fact that he goes to heaven and he goes before God the Almighty and he pleads our best case. And we talked about his role as a counselor. And then last night we talked about Absalom and we talked about that father-son relationship that God has with us and how much God wants us to be saved and how it grieves him whenever we are not. Tonight, we're gonna talk about some of those concepts but in a more in-depth way when we talk about God as just and justifier. I want to talk more about how God saves us and why he saves us the way that he does and talk about why the world views salvation sometimes is flawed, according to the Bible. I want to begin in Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 10 through 28. The Bible there says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, Unto all and upon all that them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So that's a, a little bit of a lengthy reading, but this is a reading that is read a lot in our world today whenever the topic of salvation comes up. And the reason it's read a lot is because these words are taken and twisted to make the gospel of Christ appear to be something that it is not. Many religious people look at this passage that we've just read and other passages like it to say that 
There is no, um, uh, nothing that you have to do in order to be saved, that faith only saves you, that there's no action that is required. As a matter of fact, if we required an action, it would cheapen what God has done for us. There would be no more free gift and no more free justification that we just read about. And so because it would make it no longer free, therefore there is nothing that you and I have to do. That's what the world says many times about the scripture that we just read and other scriptures just like it. But that's not what this passage teaches. And I want to spend some time this evening talking with you about that and really getting into kind of the nitty-gritty of how the gospel works and why God did what he did. Over in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 15. 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 15. I'm going to turn over there. I do this so that way uh, if anybody's turning, they have time to do it. So we get there about the same time. 2 Peter 3, 15 says, An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our bro- beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto you hath written unto you, as also in his epistles speaking in them of those things in which some things are hard to be understood, which they, are, they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. You know, Peter, back in the time of the first century, recognized that some of the concepts that Paul wrote some of the things that he wrote down in his letters, some of those things sometimes were hard to understand and that people misunderstood them. That's going on today. People misapply the book of Romans and other writings many times to try and say that there's nothing for us to do and other errors in the gospel and other errors in Christian doctrine. But yet, what I'd like to talk about tonight is why we should properly understand this passage and how we should properly understand this passage. You know, one of the things this passage says is that we cannot and have not obeyed God. And that's certainly true. The Bible says there, the passage we just read says, there's none righteous, no, not one. And and I want you to understand that tonight, that that's absolutely true. We've got a lot of fine folks here this evening. I've got bad news for you. There's not one of you that's righteous by yourself. Not one of you. We are all sinners The Bible says, and in the scripture that we just read, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, if we could obey God perfectly, then we would be righteous in and of ourselves. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in verse number 25. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in verse number 25. There it says, and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all those commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. You know, if the, if the Jews, if the Israelites had been able to perfectly keep God's law, you know what they would have been able to do? they'd have been able to strut up to the throne on the day of judgment. And they'd have been able to say, look, you gave us a law. We kept it perfectly. It's our righteousness. We've done it. We didn't miss one thing. We haven't disobeyed one time. And so therefore, it's our righteousness. If you and I could obey God's word and never fall, we wouldn't need anything. We would just be able to declare our own righteousness. We would be able to go to God and say, I am worthy of salvation because I've never sinned. The problem is, is that not one of us can say that because every last one of us has sinned and that puts us in a very bad spot. In Romans chapter three and in verse number 10, the Bible says there is none righteous. We read that. Romans 3, 23, we read this too, for all have sinned. And in 1 John chapter one and in verse number eight, the Bible says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Have you ever began to think about your life And have there been times in your life where you kind of think you have it all together? And I hope you've had times like that because that's that's good to an extent. 
But we need to always have it tempered with the understanding that, look, no matter how good we think our life is going and how close we think we're living to God, these things are still true. Now, that's bad news, but there's good news coming. That's bad news because what that means is is that you and I have all failed miserably in perfectly obeying God. We have not done that. Now, there's some ramifications for that. And one of the biggest and the single biggest, the one we're going to focus on tonight, is that God cannot save you like that. That's terrible news for us. We have disobeyed God, and because of that, you cannot be saved like that. You can't. And the Bible talks about that. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 9, we read this passage last night, but we're going to read it again tonight. 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 9, this is echoing the concept we talked about last night. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't mean to be misunderstood tonight that say God does not want to save you. We talked about that last night. Because you have disobeyed God's law does not mean God doesn't want to save you, but he just can't. He can't. You know, there are things sometimes that we want to do for our children, but we just are unable to because of some impediment. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's opportunity. Uh, Bren uh, wanted to go. My do- Bren's my oldest daughter. Bren's my oldest daughter. She attends the University of Texas. She wanted to go watch Texas play in the College World Series yesterday. I couldn't take her. She wanted me to go. I couldn't take her. Why couldn't I take her? Because I'm here. I was, uh, there's no way, unless you guys, you would have been better off, but unfortunately, I was committed to stay here, so I couldn't take her, and so there's no way I could do it. Whenever we put sin in our lives, we put an impediment to God. Remember, we read Isaiah 59, our sins separate us from God, and so God cannot save us like that, no matter the fact that he wants to, but the reason, and here's the point, the reason God can't save us is not because he's mean, not because he's arbitrary, not because he sits up on his throne and he says, well, you know, Jason, you, you, you messed up. You committed a sin. Ha ha. Now I'm not going to save you. Or I win the game or whatever it is we think God is doing. That's not the point. And I think it's critical to understand why God can't save us in that situation because it helps us to understand everything else that comes next. God cannot save you in that position because he is just. He is just. Over in Zephaniah chapter three and in verse number five, Zephaniah chapter 3 and in verse number 5. You would think with a book like Zephaniah, you would do yourself a favor and mark it, but I didn't. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse number 5. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. The Lord is is just. He never does iniquity. He never fails. Over in Psalm 89, the 89th Psalm and in the 14th verse, the 89th Psalm and in the 14th verse, there the psalmist says this, justice and judgment are thy habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Talking about the fact that God is absolutely just. That's an important point and an important part of God's character. And then Habakkuk and uh, Habakkuk chapter one and verse number 13, there the writer says this, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. 
He's complaining, but he says, look, I know you're a God that can't look, even look on iniquity. You know, the reason God can't save Brent when Brent sins or Jason whenever Jason sins or Jeffrey or Trevor, and I don't mean to leave anybody out, but in this one, you're glad to be left out because we're talking about people that can't be saved in their current situation. The reason you can't be saved like that is because God does not play favorites. He's just. He's just. You know, we were talking the other day about the advocate, and I was talking about how I'm a lawyer and how times I have to go before a judge. You know, there are times when I know the judge, and he's a good judge. You know what that means? My relationship with him is not going to matter one iota because it doesn't matter if I'm who I am. He's going to take it and judge it righteously because he's a good judge. Now, even that good judge will mess it up from time to time. God never does. And what God says is, look, I told them to obey my law. They have violated it, and there is a penalty for that violation. God's just. And so, therefore, because of that, he can't save us like this. Over in uh, Romans chapter 6 and in verse number 23, you know that verse. The wages of sin is death. There's a penalty. That's the reason God can't save us, because in his law, whenever you and I commit sin, the result of that is that there is a penalty that is required, and that penalty is death. Now, why is it that God says that the penalty of sin is death? It's because of how terrible sin is. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. You know, I think sometimes we think of sin like a speeding ticket. You know, maybe you've committed a sin. Have you ever thought about that? You commit a sin and you go, oops, sorry. Shrug your shoulders, go, okay, I'll do better next time. Sorry, God. And then maybe you go down the road, you commit another sin and you go, oops, sorry, I, oof, sorry, God, didn't mean to do that. I'll try and do better next time. And it's, it's like we're getting demerits or like we're being sent outside in the hall or, or like we're getting a speed. That's not the way God views sin. God's not sitting up on his throne going, oh, there's another sin. I, okay, we'll try better next time. That's, that's not how God looks at this. And we need to understand that. Because God is just, because God is perfect, because he is holy, whenever he sees sin, he hates it. As a matter of fact, we just read that he can't even look on iniquity because his eyes are so pure. He hates it. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and in verse number 16, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and in verse number 16, the Bible there says this, for all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. You and I left our own devices are an abomination to God. Uncovered by the blood of Christ, we're an abomination. Over in the 105th, or excuse me, the 11th Psalm and in the 5th verse, the 11th Psalm and in the 5th verse, there the Bible says this, it says, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. His soul hateth. That's us, uncovered by the blood of Christ. In Proverbs chapter 6 and in verse number 16, Proverbs chapter 6 and in verse number 16, there the writer says this, These six things do the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, an heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Lord hates those things. In Zechariah 8 and 17, there's another reference to hate, but I want to go over to Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse number 20. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse number 20, where we get a repronouncement of the penalty we talked about earlier. The Bible simply says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. I don't know how to make that any more plain. That's pretty clear. God cannot save us in the condition 
that we are in. It is because he is pure and he is just. Well, that makes salvation a little bit of an impossibility, doesn't it? I mean, God's perfect. God hates sin. We're all involved in sin. Excuse me. Uh, We're all involved in sin. And so therefore, that creates a pretty big conundrum, don't you think? I mean, how are we gonna bridge this gap if God is just and he can't even look on sin and the penalty of sin is death and you and I sin over and over and over again in our lives and God is looking in that sin and hating that sin and the penalty of that sin is death, what do we do? And I think understanding why that happens is very important. You know, our sins, like I said, created what seems like an unsolvable problem, but we've also read that God desperately wants to save us. And so if the penalty of that sin is death, and God desperately wants to save us, and God by his nature is absolutely just, how does a just God avoid requiring a just penalty? If we agree that the just penalty of sin is death, and we agree that God is just, how is he gonna fix this? Well, he has a solution. The short answer is that he does not. (laughs) He does not. He does not come down and excuse your sin. He does not come down and say, hey, Carrie, think you're a good guy. I like you. I know you've got a lot of sin in your life. We're just going to let that slide and you're going to get to go to heaven. That's not what God does. Sometimes maybe we think that's what he does, but that's in fact not what God does. He does nothing of the sort. He does not solve that conundrum for us in that way. Instead, in Romans chapter 3 and in verse number 24, Romans chapter 3 and in verse number 24, The Bible says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation for our sins through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier in him which believeth in Jesus. You see, he sent Christ to be a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation That word propitiation is important because what it means is is that God has offered Christ as a substitute for us so that instead of us paying that penalty, the penalty is paid by Christ. That's how our loving God, who is just, can be both just and justifier of someone like me. Because our righteous God says, look, I I, I hate sin, I I can't... I can't not make somebody pay for it. Instead, he makes Christ pay for it instead. And that's really important for us to understand. Over in Isaiah chapter 53 and in verse number four, we read some of this, but I wanna read some of it again. Talking about Christ, and I'm gonna read this a little slower this time, and I wanna talk about some of the phrases here. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Christ took on all of our sins. He did that on the cross. And yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's really the kicker, isn't it? I mean, Christ was, was trying to do something for us. He was taking all of our sins, and yet we, dis- we deemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We didn't treat him right. In fact, the, the, the human race crucified Christ when he came. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised and he bore our stripes that we should have borne. And with that, 
we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to pay attention to that last phrase, the iniquity of us all. Can you name all the sins that you've committed? I can't. If I sat up here and I tried to describe to you all the iniquity in Brent Benoit's life, we would be here a while. And it would be a pretty burdensome thing. Now, right now, there are about 7 billion people on the earth. There are 7 billion lives that are committing sin probably almost on a daily basis. Those are the people that are alive today. There are billions that have lived before the seven billion that are on this earth. And they, there may be billions more that'll live after us, we don't know. Our loving savior took all the sin, every last little bit of it. Can you imagine all the heinous and terrible things that have been done in this world? And because God wanted to make his grace and his mercy and his salvation available to everybody, he laid every last bit of that on Christ. You know, if I have to sit and face my own sin, it's hard for me to bear. You know, whenever I'm confronted with some of the things that I've done, I don't know if you've ever grieved about some of the sins that you've committed. Folks, billions of people, those sins laid on our Savior. And that's what happened whenever Jesus went to the cross. It says there, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened on his mouth. He is brought as a land done to the slaughter and his sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? Why was he like that? Why did Christ go to the cross and not open his mouth? He didn't open his mouth because there was no defense that he could give. Well, I mean, that's not true really, right? I mean, he could have given a defense. Here's a good one, I'm perfect. But the reason he didn't give a gift or defense is because of me. He didn't open up his mouth because if he did, I'm lost. And if he did, every one of us in this building is lost. So he went to his executors silent. For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Isn't that an odd thing? It pleased God to bruise Christ. Why? Do you think God took pleasure in the act of bruising Christ? No. That's not why Christ, but that's not why God took pleasure in this. Why did God take pleasure in bruising Christ? Me. You. It wasn't that he wanted Christ to be bruised. It was that he was looking to what would happen if Christ paid that penalty. He knew that if Christ went and he was bruised and he was chastised and he was beaten and he was whipped and he was nailed to a cross and he was executed and he died there, that that would finally once and for all pay the penalty of sin for those who accessed that blood. He was gonna be able then, after Christ died, to be, as we read, both just and justifier of every one of us. It enables him to look at someone like me and save me and still be just because of Christ. He put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, 
He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of his travail of his soul and shall be satisfied, it's paid. That debt of sin is paid and satisfied by what Christ went through on the cross. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It pleased him to bruise Christ, and yet when he is done, he gives him great reward because he made it possible for God to be both just and justifier. Now, as we said, when we began this evening, we said that these words were often twisted, and that's because in the chapter or in the verses that we read, there's a lot of talk about the free gift and how God freely saves us, and that through the works of the law, no man shall be justified. And so the world has begun to say, well, look, what that means is, is that it's a free gift, and therefore we don't have any action. Because Christ died for us, because Christ did all this stuff for us, all you and I got to do is just believe in Jesus, and that's it. There's nothing else for us to do, and Romans just does not say that, folks. And I want to spend the rest of my time talking a little bit about that. Because it's important that even though we understand how Jesus is both just and justified, that we understand how we access that blood and take advantage of that justification. Over in Romans chapter 5 and in verse number 15, the Bible there says, but as, for the, as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more by the grace of God and the gift of by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. The gift that is freely given it's not that you and I get some, you know, get out of jail free card because, uh, you know, we read the Bible or because we believe Jesus. We don't get a coupon into heaven because of that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is God didn't have to give Jesus. There was nothing that required Christ to go to the cross. God could have been perfectly just and sent every last one of us to damnation because we've committed sin. But instead, he freely, by his grace, by his mercy, by his pardon, sent Christ to die upon the cross of Calvary for us. And because of that, it's a free gift. And that's what's free about it. The fact that God, through his grace, offered up Christ. Now, where did we get the idea that obedience cheapens grace? That's what the world will tell us today. You can't preach anything other than believing in Christ and faith only, because if you do, you cheapen the grace of Christ. Why? Why? Hampton's up here. Hampton, my friend. Say I wanted to give Hampton a present. And let's say I got him a really good present and I wrapped it in a nice box with shiny paper and I put a good bow on it. That's not me, that's probably Christy. But anyway, if I made it look real pretty and I gave him a gift and I gave it to Hampton, what would you think? What would you think if Hampton threw that box back at me and said, this is not a gift? And I looked at Hampton and I said, what do you mean it's not a gift? And he says, I gotta unwrap it. I've got to take this bow off. I've got to tear open the paper. I've got to open the box. And only then will, it be a get, will I be able to get what I've got. That's not a gift. There's too much work involved. That's nonsense. None of us would ever say that. You see, whenever I want to give a gift to Hampton, I can put conditions on that gift. I mean, I could have just, and this is what I do to Christy a lot of times, pull something out of a, out of a store sack and say, here you are, happy birthday. Or I could properly wrap the gift to give it to him. Either way, it's still a gift. 
You see, Jesus gave his life for us, and he said, look, freely, you can have my blood, but he gives us conditions to, to access that blood. And we think that that somehow cheapens the gift that God gave. I think preaching that doctrine cheapens the gift that Jesus gave. The notion that you and I, by standing up and saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and being baptized, somehow have done some work that is of such magnitude that we have cheapened the grace of Christ is obscene and it's offensive to the grace of Christ. Jesus' grace is tremendous. His abundant mercy and pardon is enormous. And the idea that you and I, by being baptized or recognizing that that's the condition to access his blood, have somehow cheapened that wonderful gift. Folks, we need to think about the implications of that. There's no way. That doesn't cheapen God's grace. That is simply God putting conditions that he and his ultimate authority can put on us being willing and able to access the grace of Christ. Over in Romans chapter five and in verse number 15, I'm gonna read a couple more verses here. I was talking to someone earlier uh, during, this, during the meeting about uh, things and one of the conversations we had was the importance of putting things in a context. We actually talked about it in the specific reference to the book of Romans. And, um, and, and I wanna do that for a little bit here this evening because we're gonna read Romans chapter five, verses 15. These are again, some of these verses that are used to preach faith only. And I want you to, we're gonna continue through Romans six, which are verses that we use. And I say we, the church uses to say that we need to be baptized in order to be saved. So we've got these two sets of verses right next to each other. And let's see if we can make sense of them. In Romans chapter five and in verse 15, it says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more by the grace of God and by the gift, of, by, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we just read free, 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 gift, gift, gift a lot of times in those verses. But then we come to chapter six. And I know you all know this, but whenever Paul wrote the book of Romans, he didn't write chapter six. He just kept on writing. So he kept on writing. And what he says is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, look, since we've got this free gift, since we've got this coupon to get into heaven that God just gives us freely, then why don't we just go ahead and live our lives like we want to? Why don't we just go ahead and do whatever we want? Well, let's just let grace abound. And Paul says, God forbid. And then in verse number two, he says, uh, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, I want you to listen to verse five. For if. Some of you may be, I think some of you know something about computers and, you know, and, and, and writing code. You know, if you say, if 
something, then something, that's a condition. You know, or to take it out of computer spec, if I went to Hampton again, I said, Hampton, if you open this box, you will get a present. What does that mean if Hampton doesn't open the box? No present. If I told uh, Carrie, Carrie, if you will um, be nice to me tonight, I'll buy you a, uh, what do you like, a Diet Dr. Pepper? A Diet Dr. Pepper at, at Sonic tomorrow. Well, if he's mean to me, what does that mean? Sorry, no Diet Dr. Pepper. I don't care if it is happy hour and half price at Sonic. We understand that. Now, the verse here says, if, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to be planted together in the likeness of his death? He's talking about baptism. That's the whole likeness. That's what this whole set of verses is talking about. So we could shorten to this, for if we have been baptized, that'd be the same thing. For if we have been baptized, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we want to be resurrected with Christ, if the point of this is to live with him eternally in heaven, if the point of this is to be resurrected with him like Christ was resurrected, what the Bible says is, if you want that, you have to be baptized. If you are baptized, you'll be resurrected. What does that mean if we're not? Well, we understand the point of that. If we're not, we're not. We're not going to be resurrected. And so we will not get that salvation. Continuing on in verse number six, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth we should not serve sin for he that is dead is freed from sin. You see, this is not about a free gift that we don't have to do anything about. Paul goes on to say, look, as even though it's free, even though we have grace and we have pardon and we have mercy, it still depends on us being willing to submit ourselves to God in baptism through the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. And we know the reason for that is because that's the form in which God paid the debt. God says, I am paying your debt by crucifying Christ. And then I'm proving his victory over death by resurrecting him. Now, if you want access to that blood, I would like for you to go through a likeness of the same thing. I would like for you to be buried with him in baptism and rise to walk in newness of life. And if, if you were planted like that, you'll be resurrected. And that's simply what he says in these verses. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 21, I know we read this a lot, but it makes some sense whenever we've done this study even more than maybe it does. Before, it says, the light figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason it saves us is because we access and we go through the same thing that paid our debt. And we get that through the baptism that we find in the gospel. In Romans chapter 11 and verse number 22, Romans chapter 11 and in verse number 22, the Bible says, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on those which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. Basically what God is saying is, look, if you want to be saved, you need to do what I've asked you to do. That does not mean we're going to be perfect. It does not mean you and I are gonna stop sinning. What it does mean is if you want access to that payment, you need to get it like God asked you to. And he did it by saying, we've gotta obey the gospel. James chapter two and in verse number 17 says that without works, faith is dead. We can talk about belief all we want, but whenever you and I have no action to back it up, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So the question I've got tonight is, will you take advantage of God's amazing gift. Just to sum up, if you are not a Christian tonight, 
and I know we have some that are not. I wanna, I wanna just take a moment, because we, I don't know if you'll be back again during this meeting, and I wanna just give one last time a plea. Listen, if you're not in the kingdom of God, you're lost. There is a terrible, terrible place called hell that awaits us if we have sin in our lives. Now, I mean, this is as serious as it gets. Can't be any more serious than what we're talking about right now. And if you die in that condition, there's no hope. God cannot save you. Our God is just, and he is going to punish sin. And if your life is not covered by the blood of Christ, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can be done for you. The Bible tells us that. But if you're here and you're willing to access the blood of Christ and you're willing to be added to his kingdom, that blood can cover your sins. And all those things can be justified by the tremendous gift that God gave us through Christ. The way we do that, and we've talked about this before, but I wanna talk about it again right now, is that we first of all believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. In John chapter three and in verse number 16, John chapter three and in verse number 16, the Bible there says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have to believe. And everybody in the world says, yep, that's right. But then everybody in the world gets off the train after this, they stop. They say, that's it. All you gotta do is believe. That's not what the Bible says. In Luke chapter 13 and verse three, our Lord and Savior said, I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's Jesus talking. Unless we repent, we're gonna perish. He says in Romans chapter 10, or Paul says in Romans chapter 10, nine and 10, that we, with the mouth, we, can, we make confession and we confess under salvation. And then in Romans chapter six and verse number four and five, like we talked about, if we are baptized, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Mark 16 and 16, 15 through 16 says that if we, uh, that uh, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. Verse 33 and 21, the light figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So the point tonight is if you're not added to God's kingdom, if you've never obeyed the gospel, those are the steps. Believe, be willing to repent of your sins, be willing to confess his name, and be willing to be baptized. If you can do that, you can access this free gift that we've talked about tonight. Or maybe you're here and you've accessed these things before. You've once been justified. You know, there's another pernicious doctrine that we haven't talked about tonight, and that doctrine is that once you have been satisfied, once you have been saved, that you cannot lose it. That's just not true. The Bible talks about the fact that we can lose our salvation. We can walk away from God. And if you've walked away from God, there may not be any more sacrifice for your sins right now in the condition that you're in. You may have walked away from the blood that covers your sins. You can walk back to it tonight. We can help you with that. Or if you need the prayers of the church, if there's one of either case, won't you please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.